You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. Welcome to episode one of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. In episode zero, I shared a little bit about my story, my relationship with change, and how embracing it has truly become a way of life for me. I also gave you a little taste of what you can expect with this podcast, real people, real stories of vulnerability and strength, and real tools to help you navigate the unknown. I wanted to do something really special for this episode, and I thought of no better way than to have my coach as the very first guest. Helping me kick off this new project is Dr. Myrna Lashley. Myrna holds a PhD in counseling psychology from McGill University. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry of McGill, as well as a researcher and project leader at the Lady Davis Institute for Medical Research of the Jewish General Hospital. She is an internationally recognized clinical teaching and research authority in cultural psychology and serves as an expert psychological consultant to institutions, including the juvenile justice system. She has won numerous awards for her work in addition to academic publications She's also authored two training manuals on intercultural issues in the workplace and co-authored a chapter in the book, Encountering the Unknown. Her current research focuses on the intersections of culture, terrorism, and national security. Myrna, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You have been a voice of reason for me. You have helped me flip the switch on some major light bulb moments and constantly remind me that no matter how much the current tries to steer my ship, that I am in control, that I am the captain of my choices, of my emotions, and of my reality. So I am very excited to have you here speaking with our listeners and I today. Thank you. I've got such a deep appreciation for your outlook on life and and willingness to help people expand their minds to new opportunities. But before exploring your perspective, I would really like to first get a better understanding from a psychological perspective. Why are we so inclined to resist change? We are inclined to resist change because change can be very frightening. There is a certain comfort in in our complacency, in doing what we've always done, in doing what we've been taught as children, and frankly, in doing the things that make us likable to others, to our peers, but not stepping outside the box. There's a certain comfort in that. When you step outside and decide that I don't want to follow that path anymore, or I'm going to go up against what the majority of my peers think, it can be very lonely. It can be very frightening. But of course, we also have to understand that there is no progress without change. Mm. And uh, the greatest change leaders that we can all identify either in our lives or in history have been those who have said i'm going to do it this way i'm going to step outside even if you don't like me after i do it and do you think that change is reserved just for the trailblazers and the pioneers and leaders or do you think that adapting to change is important in this day and age for everyone It's important for everyone. Look, the thing is, whether you realize it or not, you're dealing with change every day, every minute of your life. It's a fact. The fact that you and I are talking right now, um, 
we are changing each other as we go, even though it's imperceptible. And certainly, once we have finished this, this podcast at the end of this, as we both reflect on what happened, it may change the way we see life. We, we, we are adapting. So it's a fallacy to tell ourselves that we're not changing. It's the big changes is when we realize that, that we have to do it. When we take it in our hands, that's what's frightening. But change is happening. It doesn't, we don't have to change the world. And yet by changing ourselves, we are changing the world. That's so powerful. And I love that your perspective is that, and, and I mean, perspective is one thing, but the reality is change is constant. And regardless of how we view it, it's happening kind of with or without our Absolutely. consent. Yes. And so for those who feel afraid of change, who feel the need to resist it, how can they lean into that a little more and be a little less afraid? I think one of the things that I try to help people to do is to visualize where they, where they are, where they want to go and what routes one can take to get there. Um, because it's not a single route. It's, it's not, this is not a, a linear progression. Um, if you compare it, for example, I know that we both live in a specific part of town. And I know that we live in a city where there is a lot of construction going on. So you and I, who live relatively close to each other, um, we start to head downtown in our cars or taxi or bus, what have you. And you don't realize that with the construction, a road has been blocked. Now your destination is still downtown, but when you get to that particular road, you have to make a choice. So you change, but you're still headed in the same direction. And you may have recalibrated to say, this is now the route I will take. But mm -hmm. as you've gone down a few kilometers, you may come up to another, another blockage that you didn't know existed. And you have to change there also. Always heading in the same direction, but there are many routes to get there. And you always have to adapt to them. So anyone who thinks that this is a linear thing, that you're going to go from A to B, very seldom is that the truth. You often end up going A to C to get back to B. You know, I mean, you just adapt. And I think if people can visualize that and understand that it's not linear, but that one constantly has to adapt to the circumstances in which one finds oneself, it makes it a little bit easier. Not See, totally easier, easy, but easier is the comprehension that allows us to. Right. You mentioned visualization, and I think, you know, recently anyway, in recent years with The Secret and other popular kind of Hollywood style productions, it really has popularized this notion of visualization. But this is an old technique. This has been around for decades, if not centuries. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, how important is it to be able to visualize going through change comfortably and optimistically on what's on the other end? Well, I don't know if one goes through change necessarily comfortably, <laughs> comfortably. <laughs> although there That's are fair. instances in which it, it depends on what your end goal is and how, how invested you are in it. But I, don't, I wouldn't tell people that going through it is going to be comfortable because very often it is not. But the thing is, can I embrace it and say, you know, this may not work out. 
but what will I have learned if it doesn't work out? Will I have learned things which I can apply to the next instance, to the next circumstance? Because no matter what you do, as long as you're drawing breath, as long as you're alive, you can take, there's always some kernel that you can take from one experience and apply it to another. Even if the application is one of don't do that again, that's still a learning. Absolutely. And it reminds me of something that I say a lot with my clients and, and friends and family is anytime I hear them say, oh, well, what's the worst that can happen? And even if it is backed by good intention and optimism, we are still on some level giving piece of giving part of our attention to the fact that something negative can happen. And so I try to reroute that in getting them to pivot their approach and saying, what's the best that can happen? No, I, I agree with you, but I do both of them. I ask them, what's the best that can happen? And how will you get there? What are the routes? I have them draw out several routes for me. How will you get there? And I also ask them, what's the worst can, that can happen? And if the worst does happen, what are the routes that we can use to extricate ourselves from them? Hmm. Because if you, the, the thing is, I don't like helping people to fill their, 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 their heads with fairy dust. I want them to understand that they can be fairy dust, but I also want them to understand they can be some sprinklings of <laughs> not so good dust intermingled in that. So how do you deal with it when you get the best? How do you extricate yourself when you get the worst? Because inevitably, in some circumstances, things are not going to turn out the way you want them to. Because right. especially when you're interacting with the other human beings, you cannot predict how that person is going to interact. No matter how well you know them, something could occur in their lives which will have an impact upon your interaction with them. So what are, what, what are your fallback positions? How will you deal with this? Will you deal with it by allowing them to vent, by being caring? Or will you say, as Maya Angelou says, when you see trouble coming down the street, cross the road. Sometimes <laughs> we need to cross the road. And other times we need to say, okay, this is something this person is experiencing, or this is a situation, as in the roadblock in the construction, that I can work with or work around. So I try to help people to identify those issues. And I really do, and I, I want to revert back to the introduction you gave. I, re, I use those because those are skills that I learned as a psychologist. These are skills that I learned when I was doing therapy with people. You learn to help them to identify the good, the bad, and the in-between, and then mm -hmm. how you're going to deal with all of them. What I really appreciate and even just working with you and in this conversation, when we visualize and are able to at least um, pay attention to some of the things that we are fearing, for myself anyway, I've noticed that some of these fears are either irrational or I'm giving them attention unnecessarily and, and in a mm -hmm. way that is, isn't doing me any favors. And I say this because there have been times where I've thought, what is the worst that can happen? And I start to follow through the thought process and seeing, okay, well, if this happens, it's actually not so bad. And if this happens, I've got this person to help. And I'm almost more afraid of the unknown, you know, of 
being afraid of asking that question, then when I actually start to work through it and unearth some of these things, I realize if these things did occur, it wouldn't be ideal. It wouldn't be comfortable, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. There you go. And sometimes you learn the greatest things from those things which don't occur the way you had visualized or the way you had hoped. And I think back to a, a, a friend of mine who, um, who talks about stepping off a mountain, about having gone through some things and then having to reach the top of the mountain and say, this is where I step off and how frightening that was for that friend. But once that person did it, that person flourished because the fear of stepping off the mountain was greater than actually stepping off the mountain, the mm-hmm. metaphorical mountain, of course, but was greater than stepping off the mountain. Right. Super powerful. And I think we, we get in our own way. We get stuck right before the ledge and we don't want to take the leap because it's more comfortable. We convince ourselves anyway, it's more comfortable to live in the fear than it is to see what's on the other side. Yes. And, and for some people, um, they've really made a friend and, and a lot of people make friends of their fears. And sometimes given the circumstances at certain points in one's life, it might be necessary to stop within that fear and examine it before getting out of it. Because if you don't understand it, if you don't understand its impact, if you don't understand the variables which are impinging on you from that fear, you may step out, but you wouldn't have left it. You know, it's possible to to leave, to step out of your your house, but never to have left it. I, I know that's that's that that's very metaphorical, and it sounds kind of weird what I'm saying, but I'm saying it, you can tell yourself you've done something, but you may not have left it behind because you still see it as that place you can always run back to. What I hope to do with people and their fears is help them to get up to that door, step out and close the door. You talked about befriending our fears and it reminded me of a documentary that I recently watched on the brain. And there was a monk that was interviewed and he was talking about finding inner peace and how meditation was his guide to do so. And he said, it's not that I don't have fears and it's not that things don't make me anxious. It's that I have learned to become friends with those fears and with Mm -hmm. the things that trigger anxiety because I see them. And when I close my eyes, I can choose to either, and he gave the analogy of being a turtle in a shell. He said, I can choose to be back in my shell and hiding from it and let it control my life. Or I can choose to live outside my shell and see how we can coexist. Precisely so. You know, I'm always, uh, um, a lot of people say to me, as you know, I, I, I do a lot of work on culture. And, and one of the things that I hear very often is when people praise the late, great Nelson Mandela and say, and say things like, you know, and he came out of jail and he didn't hate anybody. And that's not true. That's not true. What Nelson Mandela said was that he hated, he was very angry. There's people say he, got, he wasn't angry. Yeah, he was angry. He lost 27 years of his life. He was very angry at apartheid. He was very angry at people who practice apartheid. He and Declare didn't like each other. Those two men shook hands, but they didn't like each other. 
But what Nelson Mandela said was, I don't like him, but I love my country. Yeah. I don't like apartheid, but I love my country. So I will make peace. I will do what is necessary to help bring peace to South Africa and stop the bloodshed. That is what is important to me. So he learned to live with his anger and his hatred of a system and those who perpetrated it and the joy of being part of a movement that would stop the bloodshed in South Africa. And that's the, I, I see that as an analogy to what you talked about, about the turtle and the shell. Yes, you, you, you learn to do it. But you don't, the, the, the trick is not to learn to do it from a position of anger, I gotta do this, but a right. position of peace, a position of having thought it through and understanding why you're doing it, coming to peace with it and saying, I own this. I choose to do this. This is not being forced upon me. I choose to do this. In other words, you take back control because if you okay. don't take control of it, it will live your life. And if it was some a problem you had with someone who's passed on, that person continues to live your life from beyond their grave, for goodness sake. <laughs> you know, because you have not taken control. And so there are lots of things I don't like in my own life. Um, there are lots of situations I live. But I say in this area, I have control. I, 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 being a person of color, I, I live with the fact that there are people who say and do abominable things to people of color but i also know that i have to do my bit i have to work with certain people i have to do certain things in order to bring about a better place for the collective uh, for my daughter for my family for my sisters for uh, so if you can understand that everything you do has an impact on the greater collectivity and that you've got control of that, that makes it easier to deal with change. And if I could say one, one other thing, if I may. Please. Is that I, I, I put change into three categories. You know, I go, there are hassles, there are challenges, and there are joys that you want to get. The hassle is, a, is the most difficult one to deal with because those things, they're daily things and they can accumulate if you haven't, if you don't know how to meditate, if you don't know how to, to see where they're coming from, if you can't smile through them, not smiling from a position of a better smile, but I'm burning up inside, but step back <laughs> almost and look at it from the outside in and say, isn't that the most silly thing you've ever seen somebody getting upset? Look at that. I mean, I, I often do that. And then I don't feel trapped by it. I just look at it and say, what a silly thing to hate someone because they're female. Or what a silly thing to hate someone because their um, they're life partner is not a life partner you would have chosen. Or what a silly thing to hate someone because they have a different pigmentation. And then I'm not angry anymore. I just look at it and go, wow, look at that. It no longer has power. It has no power. I've taken back mm. control out of it. Exactly. And challenges also is something that 
I want to do, but it's going to be difficult because I have a deadline and I've got to get it done and I've got to make all these adaptations. But the thing about it is that it's finite. So you know, for example, if you're getting married, all the things that are leading up to, to getting married and all the, the, the things that you have to do and you know you might as well run off to to the um to the courthouse and get it done you know for <laughs> something. But you know you've got all these family members who want this and you know you promised your mom you'd have a big wedding and you know and you know she wants to invite all these relatives that you don't know and some of them you don't even like. But you do it. But at the end of it, at the end of that day, that challenge is over. And then you start the business of living your life. So I, I think you have to understand what kind of change is being demanded of you. Oh, the joys are, are, are brilliant. Um, you, you know, a new, a new child. Um, you, you're happy about that child. Or even just, let's go to the movies tonight. Those are joys. Those are, those, those, you know, the, the kind of things that, when you think about them, you just feel this, this joy and, uh, and mirth going into your cheeks and you can't help but smile because it's almost <laughs> like it takes over your face and it's such an involuntary smile, but it fills you and your eyes get wider and, oh, it's so marvelous. I love it. <laughs> Do you think that people are wired to embrace change or not? And if it isn't something that is inherently in us, how can we learn to improve that, to kind of strengthen that muscle? I think that when we're children, children do it all the time. Um, you know, you watch a child at play and they'll be doing something and all of that, put that down and they go and play with something else. They come back or they, they, they see a flower and they'll stop and look at it. Children, Children do change. Children are good at change. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as we start to grow, we become something called an adult, whatever that means. <laughs> and, and we forget the, the sheer joy of being. And that's one reason I love being around children. Because children remind me what it is just to be. Just to look at something without judgment and say, I like that. I don't care if you don't like it. Yeah. I like it. And, and children teach us, teach us that. It's, but as we get older and as we get older, someone tells us, you can't do that. Don't, I mean, and they have to be rules. I understand that they have to be rules. But I think we also have to teach children as we're growing up, as they're becoming teenagers, we also have to teach them not to entirely lose that part of them that can engage in wonderment, that can engage in just seeing the rainbow and stopping and looking at it and saying, look at the colors. Now we see a rainbow and we say, ah, oh, rainbow, they don't guess it rained over there. It's in a, <laughs> it is but but we, we don't see the beauty, but my goodness gracious, isn't that lovely? And there's a joy in doing that. And that helps us to deal with change, to just stop and enjoy. So do I think we're hardwired to fear change? I don't think so. I think, but I think we hardwire it into each other. 
because we set rules for each other because very often we try to get people to be who we want them to be rather than accepting who they are. Now, I might like you. I might want to date you. I might even want to have you as my life's partner, but that's my thing. That doesn't mean you want me. And, and we try to meet someone and they're not what we want when we get to know them, but we like the looks of them and we try to manipulate them into being who we want them to be for our comfort so that we don't have to change and make the adaptation. That mm. is such an unhealthy thing. You know, you are you, I am me. Somewhere in the middle we meet and we make adjustments and accommodate for each other. But you shouldn't have to change who you are to be with me and I shouldn't have to change who I am to be with you. We have to find some common accommodation and we forget that because we don't want to change, but I'm going to do all I can to change you, to make you into something that I don't have to worry about. Kind of flipping the coin and thinking about um, organizations for a minute. Yeah. And as a certified change management professional, I know the importance of building the buy-in and helping people see what life could be like for our employees, for our customers, for our prospects, for our partners, if we make this change. And so if we are looking to guide people through a change that we are seeking to make, mm -hmm. how can we, without changing them as people, get them to see things a little differently, be open a little bit to a new way of doing things? Well, I'll tell you, when I was, um, I started the employee assistant program at the Montreal Children's Hospital. And one of the things I told the administration at the time is that they never had to worry about doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals looking after the patients because that's why they went into that business in the first place. That's why they're there. That's why they're working there. They want to look after the patients. So what you've got to do, Mr. and Mrs. Administrator, is to look after the people who are looking after the patients. You've got to help them to keep healthy. You need to have the employee assistance program. That's going to accrue to you as a good workplace. And more and more people are going to want to bring their children there because it's going to be seen as being run by people and having people working there who are happy or contented in their work. They're not going to be happy 100% of the time you're working with healthcare after all. But you look after the people who are looking after your patients and who are looking after your clients. You do that and you will find that your business will thrive because they'll want to come to work. They'll feel my boss has my back. My boss has created a workplace where I can thrive. So I tell people, put in daycares. You see it as money that you're putting out and that's going to, yes, it's going to cost you money, but you have no idea how much money you're going to get back in the end. You're going to cut down on people lying and saying they're sick when they're not sick because they need to take the kid to the hospital or they're exhausted. But if people know that they're working in a place where there's daycare, if people know that they're working in a place very often where they can have uh, flex hours, you need to go to the doctor. If it, not all businesses can afford flex hours. I understand that. But for those businesses who can, there are things that they can do. These are changes that they can make. And I may try to help them to understand this is in your best interest. Mm. Because people 
like to do things which accrue to them. You know? well, it's also the fundamentals of negotiation. Any solid negotiation is a win-win for both parties. Precisely. Right. Precisely. And people like to know what's in this for me. I mean, as crude as it sounds, that's what people want to know. So I for try sure. to help, help. So when I'm working on changing the workplace with uh, culture or any of those things or with the police, I get them to, I get them to understand how is this going to benefit me being the, 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 the administrator or whoever it is. How is this going to, what's in this for me? And what's in this for me is if the citizens, for example, feel that they can interact with the police and on, in a respectful way, I'm not saying don't interrupt crime, of course you do, but you don't have to be dismissive of the citizens. Citizens have to trust you. So if they feel that you're going to treat them with respect, it goes a long way. If people feel that if my skin is dark, dark, more darkly pigmented than someone else's, I'm going to be treated with the same amount of courtesy as the person with a lighter skin, that's in the best interest of the police department, of the police, the police department, by extension the city, by greater extension the province, and certainly by full extension the country. So it's all what, what we have to do is to get people to see that, it, as I said at the beginning, that it's all intertwined, it's all intermingled. It's not just about me, even though I asked myself what's in it for me, it then radiates outward because mm -hmm. everything is interconnected to everything else. I know that sounds trite, but it's true. <laughs> Well, you know, we bring it down to even simple goal setting and is what action are you going to take that rolls up into the big picture? How exactly. does this help move the needle? And yes. so, you know, even if we need to think about what's in it for me, what's in it for them, but at the end of the day, we need to think about big picture end goal and how is this going to get us closer to where we want to be? Exactly so. And this comes back again to taking control, to doing the work that needs to be done personally, to understand why am I doing this? Is this in my best interest? Is this going to make my health better? And by health, I'm talking physical, mental, the whole thing. Is this going to make my health better so that I can move forward, so that I can work on the things I want to work on, achieve the things I want to achieve, with the full realization that it's going to radiate outward and mm -hmm. that it's going to have an impact upon people who are yet unborn my descendants, you know, I don't know them, they're not born yet, uh, but it's going to have an impact upon them. I mean, um, I met this wonderful lady. Her name is Cicely Tyson, she's an actress. And I met her in Atlanta at the Martin Luther King Church at Ebenezer Baptist. I was sitting in the church and this lady came in and she sat next to me. And we just started talking. Um, she looked like Cicely Tyson, but I didn't know. And I, I'm not the kind of person who goes up to people and say, are you so? So I don't do that. And I, she was sitting there meditating. I was sitting there meditating. And then she turned to me and she said, you see that picture on the wall with Martin? I said, yeah. And she said, that's me. So I looked at it and I said, really? I said, you look a lot like Cicely Tyson. <laughs> and she said, well, that's because I am. And we started talking and she was telling me 
about some of the things she experienced with Martin Luther King and going on the marches. And I was telling her about coming from Barbados and not knowing anything about all this racism the way it was practiced here and in the United States and what happened to me when I went to school in the United States. And we started talking and then we, you know, she says, oh, you're, you're, you're Myrna. And, you know, because of you, this, this, this thing was changed at the hotel. I remember reading about this. And, and we talked about the marches. Now, I never met Martin Luther King. I met Cicely, but I never met Martin Luther King. But a lot of the things that he has done has accrued to me. And it's accrued to you, even though we have a different pigmentation. He's made, he's made us all more conscious Absolutely. of things that were there and were impinging on us. Some of the things I've done, um, other people are benefiting from. I, I no longer go to school in the States, but that's okay. It doesn't matter because now I've got young cousins living in the States. And I'd like to think that something that I did, no matter how minute that thing is or was, could have an effect on making their lives a better place, uh, uh, making their lives better. So we have to understand, we have to do our own internal cleaning that, you know, we have to clean us out internally. And once we've cleaned ourselves out, then we can make decisions in our own best interest over which we have control with the full realization and appreciation that it's going to radiate outward. And that's a beautiful thing. You gave me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So this, the deep appreciation, the inner cleaning, that understanding of how we show up in the world and, and its impact on the lives and the paths that we cross. I, your whole professional life from what I've seen and, and the intro is just a short snippet of what you've done. It has been dedicated to these large-scale changes, changing the system, changing society, changing culture. Is that right? Yes. Right now I'm um, working with the city of Manchong um, to look at how the city can be more accessible, the city and its services can be more accessible to those that we like to call um, disadvantaged, but I don't particularly like the word, but you know, persons of color, itinerant, people who are itinerant, um, people, les autochtones, the First Nations, uh, the people who are dealing with different types of abilities. How do we make sure that the city has put in place plans for them in terms of being employees of the city and not just low level employees, uh, but also managerial and administrative level employees? How do we deal, how do I help them to deal with issues of racial pro profiling? And that, that means that they have to look at their policies because, and systemic and structural ones because people think that if it's not active, like somebody calling you a bum or the N-word or, you know, I, I don't know what the derogative term for, for people who have different abilities is, people don't, by those very derogatory terms, then you're not engaging in discrimination and racism. In fact, you are. If you have policies that don't, that are non-inclusive or that are structured in such a way that whether you realize it or not, they're excluding others, you need to look at those policies and go over them and see how you can make them more inclusive. 
those are the kinds of issues that I'm working on. A lot of policy things on an individual and on the uh, on a um, organizational level. So when you're in the weeds and you're looking at really what needs to change, who's being impacted, and the road ahead, mm-hmm. how do you stay focused on the opportunities? I am very cognizant of the fact that a lot of the things that people are doing today, that goes for you, me, whosoever, whomsoever, that a lot of those things may not benefit the people of our generation. That They may not benefit people that, you know, because change, especially within organizations, can take time. Change can mm-hmm. be slow. Um, but so some of it will happen to people down the road. I'm very aware of that. But I'm also very aware of what Martin Luther King said, which is that we can use time to deter change or we can use time to accelerate change. Um, We can say to people, take, no, take time. This takes time. And that allows it never to change because we can always use that excuse of it's going to take time. Or we can say, there's been enough time now. Let's go on with it. So I always have to divide things into, you've got to come to some kind of an agreement within yourself on the concept of time when you're looking at opportunities. Because if you accelerate the time too quickly and you force people into it faster than they can accommodate, whether it's a human being or it's an organization, very often it will fall apart because they haven't internalized it. They haven't done the necessary internal house cleaning, whether it's a personal internal house cleaning or an organizational internal house cleaning. So what you've done is really put lipstick on a cow, <laughs> you know, and, and that lipstick will wear off. Right. Um, so you, you have to manage, you have to do push the time enough to get people moving, but understand that you have to check time enough so that you don't push it so fast that it means nothing and that because you want it to live on whether you're there directing it or not ideally you want to get it going and get out of its way right you know um uh, if you have to stay there all the time to make sure that it works it's not right it's not working it's just your personality that's making it work. You want that, and it's the same thing when you're doing therapy with someone or you're doing life changes with someone. You want to help them develop the tool, help them develop their skills, help them take control of the situation, then get out of the way. You can be there for, um, for consulting if they ever need to get in touch with you and say, we've hit this roadblock, how do we do it? But you can go in and consult, but get out of the way. Give them the tools, help them develop their tools. Get out of the way and let it go. And that's how I look at it. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It's very helpful. And it's a good lesson for micromanagers too. I mean, people can only grow as far as their, the tools allows them to. And if you are handholding them through every step of the way and not allowing them to explore what they can do, how they can contribute, it's just not scalable. It's not sustainable change. It's not growth. It's management. Precisely. It's not change. It's management. You've given us so much to think about. Thank you so very much. If people are interested in getting in touch with you and supporting the changes that you're putting in place, what would be the best way to do so? Well, the best way to do, to do that would be to write to me. 
at, uh, I'll give you my general email, Myrna Lashley, one word, at gmail.com. Myrna, you're someone whose opinion and expertise I respect so greatly, and I'm grateful to have, have you on the show. Thank you for being my first ever guest. Really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for having me. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for episode one, helping me kick off this new initiative. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Add this podcast to your favorites list and stay tuned for episode two. Until then, stay curious.